Welcome back. Let's go ahead and jump in to session three. Let's go ahead and pray first. Oh Lord, we ask you that you would send your Holy Spirit. We ask you for your word to become clear, that you would break down strongholds of the enemy within the mind that lead people to uh, hardness against you, God. We ask you to line our minds, our understanding up with Scripture, that uh, we might walk with you in truth, Father. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to make known our destiny, where we're actually going, uh, where the earth is going. We ask you for an urgency, Father, that we would have an urgency in our inner man like you have an urgency in yours concerning the uh, future of man. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so uh, the first couple of sessions, um, we covered the nature of truth and, and uh, just a little bit of the, the Lord's heart in, uh, in truth and righteousness in the hearts of, of men and women as being the goal and the standard by which we'll be judged on the day of the Lord. And then uh, we start out with Genesis 1.1 and the nature of truth uh, there that, that men have perverted that and ultimately men pervert uh, their understanding of reality and shape reality around their own perception to uh, avoid giving an account for what's going on in their hearts. Um, and then we looked at the two, as far as Christianity is concerned, the two primary uh, views of the sum total of reality as, as the heavens and the earth versus material and immaterial, which is how most people open up their Bible and they say, in the beginning, God, and uh, in the beginning, God created uh, the material and the immaterial rather than the, the heavens and the earth. And uh, and so, session three, we're going to start to look forward on the implications of interpreting reality that way. And we'll look at uh, kind of the beginning within both worldviews and how that plays out towards the end, the cosmogony playing through to eschatology and some of the... Uh, uh, the the factors in that. So starting out with uh, the Western worldview, you generally, when you start with uh, uh, immateriality and materiality, then uh, you start out with an immaterial God on an immaterial throne and uh, immutable, uh, omniscient, omnipresent, all those words that aren't in Scripture. And then uh, you have material materiality, and you have two primary factors within um, two primary factors involved when you when you uh, pervert the uh, the uh, nature of reality about human perception. Number one, you have what is the end game, and so the end game within this equation is the annihilation of materiality until all there is is immateriality forever. And so that is the nature of salvation, 
is to uh, escape and to get out of immateriality. But then you have also the issue of sovereignty and how does an immateriality rule over materiality, which is kind of confusing. And so you have, you know, how does that throne and uh, how does God's throne relate to the thrones of men and the governance of men? And so these two inherently clash because one is caring for creation and the other is destroying creation. And so this is confusing because lies are confusing and you can't wrap your mind around it because you can't wrap your mind around a lie. It just doesn't work. And so people are just left in confusion as to what is God's purpose and why does He function the way He does and how does this relate to that and the other. And so... Um, and so you get on the relationship of salvation you get a God whose primary mission in existence is to kind of save people from the sinking Titanic you know to pull people out of the flaming fire of, of the house but then you also in relation to sovereignty he's trying to establish dominion and 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 uh, immateriality taking over materiality, and so whichever end you end up, whichever you focus on, generally within the body of Christ, if you focus on salvation within this setup of reality, then you end up focusing on escapism. If you focus on God's sovereignty and kind of ignore some of the other stuff, you end up focusing on uh, dominionism and and uh, the power of the church, which is the manifestation of that sovereignty taking over the world. And so uh, either one leaves very large gaping holes in, in our heart and our understanding concerning the Lord. And they all have a very uh, large problem um, dealing with the cross and explaining the nature and purpose of the cross in both of them the cross becomes uh, the cross becomes a, a mechanism a butler a, a, a tool rather than an expression of, of, uh, of who God is and redemptive history as a whole and a revelation of God so okay so uh, salvation you get Really, once Christianity was integrated into this worldview in the Alexandrian school, and it kind of happened haphazardly all over the Roman Empire. It wasn't like Alexandria was the singular seed for the downfall of the church, but uh, but I would say probably the Alexandrian school played the biggest part as far as shaping the history of Western theology, especially shaping the theology of uh, Augustine, who is clearly the most influential uh, uh, person theologically in the church in history, uh, Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestant. The Protestant Reformation was an Augustinian Reformation. And so uh, Augustine's really, I mean, he, he was... He was uh, raised a Neoplatonist, he became a Manichaean, and then an avid reader of Origen. All three just 
radically material immaterial. And so he really laid down a lot of kind of systematic theology, though his views changed over his life. But he's really the one who kind of set a standard for the church as far as uh, 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 ingraining this and the idea of the uh, church triumphant and the millennium happening now and uh, the church taking over the earth. Now, a lot of that just happened, um, kind of happened as history unfolded, the, the fight against Gnosticism, because Gnosticism was, uh, it was, sorry, let's, the Gnosticism was a movement in the early church, which was simply Christianity being integrated with uh, Greek mythology and philosophy, and so there was a wide spectrum within Gnosticism, but the common denominator was hatred of materiality and an immaterial uh, eternal destiny. That was the common denominator of all Gnostic movements. And so they had different schema and frameworks for that. And the church, its primary fight in the early church was against two heresies. It was against the Judaizers and against the Gnostics. One had the theology right, it just thought it could attain to the resurrection on its own righteous. The other had the resurrection and the glory wrong. And so that primary fight against Gnosticism, the Judaizers died off with the destruction of Jerusalem, though there's still the fight against uh, salvation by self-righteousness. But that, that primary fight in the early church against Gnosticism raged until the church inherited wealth and power in the Constantinian Empire. And then once the church really got its evil desires, it said, hey, we are the kingdom. And it just swallowed Gnosticism whole uh, hook, line, and sinker. And the fight against Gnosticism kind of came to an end. The irony of it is, is that the vast majority of the church now, if it was judged by apostolic standards, would be Gnostic. Because the vast majority of the church really believes that we're going to sit on a cloud and sing on a cloud forever and ever. And that's just like, man, that is, that's, it's, it's, it's not just wrong according to truth. It, it, it ruins people, you know. I, I remember a couple of years ago, I, was, I taught in a small a uh, little conference of this church and, this, and I just kind of gave an overview and this lady came up uh, and she was like I she said 25 years ago my husband was a pastor we had four I had, we had four small kids and on the way home from uh, one of his uh, one of his weekday meetings he was car, killed in a car accident and I raised four kids for you know, whatever the last 20 years. And, and she said, I, I hated God. I absolutely hated God. And because I couldn't reconcile why it all happened. And she said, then two years ago, I read Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. And first, I was healed of all my hatred of God because I had a, I had a grounding in the resurrection and the restoration of creation. And then I became very angry at the church because nobody ever told me that my husband was going to be raised from the dead and that everything was going to be fixed. And, uh, and so it's not just that it's not right. It's that this leaves people without hope and without an anchor in faith to deal with the fact that our 
families are dying and there's sickness and suffering. People are just ill-equipped to deal with reality because they don't they don't understand how it is now and why it continues to be bad. And but uh, but will be fixed. So anyway, the problem is I'm contrasting this with the biblical one, and we haven't covered the biblical one, but so I'll just move on. So point A on page one, salvation equals escape of materiality. So as Origen says, and again, we shall be caught up in the clouds to meet Christ in the air, and so we shall be with the Lord, ever be with the Lord. So he's quoting First uh, uh, Thessalonians 4. We are therefore to suppose that the saints will remain there in their progress towards immateriality because uh, it, he saw a succession of aeons unto immaterial until they recognize the twofold mode of government in those things which are performed in the air. If anyone indeed be pure of heart and holy in mind and more practiced in perception, he will by making more rapid progress quickly ascend to a place in the air and reach the kingdom of heaven. And so again we have a definition uh, of the kingdom of heaven as immateriality, which is common. He says, through those mansions, so to speak, in various places, so we have a a, a twisting of John 14, in various places which the Greeks have termed spheres, i.e. globes, but which Holy Scripture has called heavens. Okay, so you get the reinterpretation of Genesis 1.1. And so in each of, in each of which uh, he will first see clearly what is uh, done there, and in the second place will discover the reason why things are so done. And thus he will... In order to pass through all gradations following him who, who has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who said, I, I will that where I am, these may also be. And so you got the uh, John 17 and John 12 uh, and John 14, all of which, uh, that's, he's not talking about going to an immaterial place and staying there forever so that we will go there with him. And of these diversity of places he speaks when he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. John 14. So then sovereignty becomes an issue of uh, dominion over materiality. And so to reconcile this, uh, like Augustine says, uh, in City of God, is then of this kingdom militant in which conflict with the enemy is still maintained and war carried on with warring lusts or government laid upon them as they yield until we come to that most peaceful kingdom in which we shall reign without an enemy. And it is, and it is of this first resurrection. So he, he's, he's saying uh, now that the first coming initiated the day of the Lord and now the church is the uh, manifestation of God uh, militating against his enemies like in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, this first resurrection in the present life that the apocalypse speaks in the words just quoted, quoting Revelation 20, for after saying that the devil is bound a thousand years and is afterward loose for a short season, it goes on to give a sketch of what the church does or of what is done in the church in those days in the words, and I saw seats and on them sat, and I saw seats and them that sat upon them and judgment was given. 
It is not to be supposed that this refers to the last judgment, but to the seats of the rulers and to the rulers themselves by whom the church is now governed. And no better interpretation of judgment being given can be produced than that which we have in the words, What ye bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what ye loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so you have a, a twisting of Matthew 16. So... Um, so you get, again, kind of two camps within or streams within Christianity depending on once you set up within a Platonic context, which you emphasize, which aspect of God's functioning, where he, functioning, where he functions on his throne and how he functions on his throne. And so, uh, so salvation and sovereignty within the biblical worldview. Okay, we have... I put up the I put the diagram on here. So once you have um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and you have a real throne and the height of the heavens ruling over uh, the uh, kingdoms of men, kingdom of men, which He delegated. And as that plays forward, then there is a day day of the Lord in which God will restore all things as they were in the beginning. And until then, He is restraining from, uh, from that judgment. And so, salvation becomes the restoration of creation rather than the annihilation of materiality. Repent, therefore, that He may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of the restoration of all things, which was which God has spoken by the mouth of His holy prophets since the world began. And so, since since the world began and the fall happened, God has sent and prophesied to human beings that the day of the Lord is coming and things will be restored as to the way they were in righteousness and harmony between God ruling in the heavens and over the governments of men. Matthew 19, um, oh, so I just pasted in there the Strong's definitions definition for apokastasis just because it's, it's the only time it's used uh, in the New Testament, but it's the idea of a restoration of theocracy, a restoration of order, and the order assumed is the order between the throne in the heavens and the thrones on the earth. I tell you the truth, at the renewal, and so uh, again a word that's not used very, or is only used twice, the polygenesia. And so at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and those who have left lands, families, homes, etc., well, uh, we'll receive eternal life. And so the renewal, the idea of renewal is the pollen genesia, the again genesis, and the renewing of genesis, the restoration, the restoring of all things as it was in the beginning. So like Romans 8 says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And the revelation of the sons of God, it's a birth metaphor that's, that's common throughout the prophetical writings. 
in which at the day of the Lord the the righteous are birthed in the resurrection, that we sit in the womb in the age of darkness now, but then uh, at the day of the Lord at the day of the Lord that we are birthed into the light in the age to come and righteousness is established on the earth. Four, verse twenty, the creation was subjected to frustration at uh, the fall, that it was subjected to returning to the dust because human beings are made out of the dirt in a fancy, very fancy conglomeration of dirt but are not meant to be buried. Human beings are not meant to be buried in the dirt. It's antithetical to how we're created. Our bodies are meant to perpetually regenerate and they're not meant to die. And so it's not right. It's, it's, a, it's a subjection from God that we return to the dirt, um, but this is how the Lord has ordained it, that he is, He's ordained death and suffering unto humiliation of human beings. And a lot of people, that's just too big of a pill to swallow, but if your hope is set in the day of the Lord that He's also ordained life and resurrection and the overcoming and the swallowing up of death, then it's not so hard of a pill to swallow. But... Um, like uh, like Psalm 73 says, it says, uh, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to men. Because they cast off the toil of the ground onto the poor. And so they don't have to worry about all the suffering and issues. We just have grocery stores where food just appears. <laughs> Not sure how that happened. A lot of poor people, that's how that happened. So he says, they're free from the burdens common to man. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They, they don't have the restraints put upon them of... Suffering. I mean, even rich people, they, they, they have suffering and they have issues. But it's not, you go to a third world country or a fourth world or to Haiti, which is now fifth world, and uh, you, you have a, there's a completely different framework for suffering and, and struggles. So therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their calloused hearts comes iniquity. And the evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. They scoff. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth in violence and oppression. Uh, this is what the wicked are like, always carefree, always increase in wealth, etc., etc. I tried to understand all this. It was oppressive to me, to me until I entered the sanctuary of God and understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed and completely swept away. And so it, uh, you, give, you get context for why wickedness and oppression continues on the earth because the Lord is being kind to the wicked and loves them also, but their day really is coming. And so the goal is not to destroy them and give them what they deserve, those unrighteous, greedy oppressors of the poor and bankers and the like, but to restrain from judgment and leave judgment and vengeance unto the Lord and Rather than executing vengeance ourselves, we uh, speak the truth about the day of the Lord to come. So, um, 
Boy, I got off on a... Romans 8, where are we at? So the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time, not only so we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Because this is why the early church pressed so intensely against the Gnostics with the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Because in the, in the doctrine of the resurrection of the body is the assumption of the resurrection of creation because human beings are the height of creation. We are the glory of creation to rule over all of creation. And so if God is going to raise human beings from the dead and overthrow death in human beings, then obviously everything that man rules over under which it will receive its own freedom and resurrection and restoration. So, uh, Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will be with them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. I'm making everything new. So we actually believe in a new or renewed heavens and earth as it was in the beginning. Whereas within this framework, you have lip service. You have lip service to a new heavens and earth, but it's not really a new heavens and earth. It's an immaterial state. And you have lip service to the resurrection. But it's not the resurrection of the body. It's actually the eternal existence of the soul in an immaterial state forever. And so it gives, it gives no real hope in the face of, of death and suffering. It gives no real hope in the face of oppression and wickedness because ultimately death wins here. And ultimately death is the good guy. Death, <laughs> death is actually the means of salvation here. And this is why the second coming, the day of the Lord, is no different in most people's minds than death. Because no, people don't want Jesus to return and they don't want death because they want to enjoy life on the earth because we were created to enjoy the earth and we were out on the lake yesterday and it was freaking beautiful and awesome and all i can think about is this is really how the earth should be and you 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 in your inner man you're strengthened that this it won't even though it's not good it is good in a lot of ways and it's not just going to be not so good it'll be awesome fairly soon and so, but people end up despising, you know, or just misrelating how they relate to their own bodies and their own life and, and their own, because uh, the end in their mind is, is to escape all this. So, um, whereas here, death is allowed for a season and struggling is allowed for a season, but ultimately it will be swallowed up and overcome rather than being immortalized here where death actually wins. And not only that, but it's not just the salvation part, but it's the sovereignty part. It's the issue of the wicked. And when you deal with injustice and rich people who step on poor people to get more rich stuff, and for egomaniacs who step on other people because they want to they want to dominate other people because that's what happens with pride 
in the heart is I'm superior and I'm awesome and therefore other people should be conformed to my awesomeness. And therefore, it's not just that I want to dominate, you know, your life and your stuff. I want to dominate you. And I want to conform you to my image. And they enslave other human beings. And it's a, it's a sick and grotesque thing. Anyway, so, so it gives an actual hope in the light of oppression that the wicked and the proud and the arrogant, they will receive a lake of fire in the age to come. And so, like, I went down to Haiti this spring for, for a couple weeks. And it was the, it was the, I mean, there really is, there's no one, there's nowhere on earth like Haiti right now. The worst human crisis this very moment on the earth. And really, I would say just about since the earth was created. I mean, it's so utterly horrible. And the complexity of the situation down there politically and economically and and spiritually and I mean just every way it is messed up it's so utterly messed up and the suffering the level of suffering and so a lot of people have started calling it the only fifth world nation on the earth because they've started delineating between third world and fourth world where you have poverty and then absolute poverty and Haiti, they're calling the only fifth world nation because it, it was absolute poverty before, and now it's, it's really just like three steps beyond absolute poverty. It, it, you, can't, you, you can't wrap your mind around the suffering of it. And, but the worst part of the whole thing is, is they had the, the Christianity is the most missionized, Christianized nation in the Western world. But the Christianity that's been brought is of the Platonic sort. So all they've gotten, you know, they they dedicated the island to voodoo and to Satan to spite the colonial French Christians who came in and used their Christianity as as a as a validation of their utter oppression of the people. So when they overthrew their oppressors, they dedicated it to voodoo primarily to spite the the uh, the hypocrites. And so you have the gospel that keeps getting preached uh, in the situation is if you'll just submit your life to Jesus, then you know everything will get better and God will end up kind of taking over and you'll have prosperity and your best life now, etc., etc. Which for the last 150 years, it's continued in a slow, steady slide into utter poverty and suffering, and it's continued like this, and they've received the same message like this for like 150 years. And not only that, but you get this rhetoric of righteousness that if, you know, they'll just turn to Jesus, which, I mean, the island is so Christianized, it's, an, it's ridiculous. I mean, there is voodoo, obviously, but it, it is, it's uh, far more foundationally Christian than the U.S., which is dedicated to Darwin, and it's though there's a large contingent of Christianity. The, the crisis brings out the reality within the heart. You know what I'm saying? So the, the, the way they responded was singing in the streets every morning and worshiping in contrast to Katrina and the way the, the Americans responded in the context of crisis. It, 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 crisis brings out the reality of what's in the inner man. 
And so they've gotten this gospel of, if you'll just give your life to Jesus, then you'll get prosperity and, and things will get better, but it's continuing God like this. And they have no answer for the utter corruption and oppression by Western uh, powers. And the... It, and so they have no answer for the wickedness. And so that's the most painful part being down there is that you have all these Christian aid groups coming in and doing this, that, and their concerts. And it's just like, and yet there's no actual good news that in the age to come there's not going to be earthquakes. In the age to come there's not going to be sickness and death and there's not going to be all of these things and there's an actual hope and all of the wicked oppressors and wicked rulers and wicked western companies and stuff that come in exploit and suck all your resources out and pay you jack for all your labor and whatever these guys you have an actual good news that their place is a lake of fire you know what i'm saying and so this is all right so i got it was a messed up. It was a messed up trip. It was just messed up. Um, so, uh, so then, be uh, sovereignty. Page three on the bottom equals faithfulness and mercy towards creation. And so, like Isaiah forty, all men are like grass, and all their glory like the flowers of the field, which is in context to verse. Uh, the verses before where the Lord is going to tear down the mountains, raise up the valleys, punishing the wicked, rewarding the righteous. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all mankind. And then I heard a voice and I said, what shall I say? And he says, all men are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And so he compares, you know the thrones on earth and all of the awesomeness and power of men to grass. In a moment, the Lord breathes on them and they wither and fade and die and all of their glory and pomp and power and wickedness that they exercise in the midst of that in a moment will be destroyed at the day of the Lord. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and His arm rules for Him. See, His reward is with Him and His recompense his recompense accompanies him. And so then he goes into this bit about the nature of his relationship to creation. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? I mean, you, like, you can't comprehend the numbers of marked off the heavens with the breadth of his hand, or held mountains. I mean, the, the, the wonder of moving, cutting through a mountain to build a road through it, the amount of mass and material, and he, and he, holds, he weighs the mountains on scales and in a balance. And so all of that is to say, look, this is how I rule over creation. This is my power and sovereignty over everything. And you have, and the earth is full of wickedness and oppression, but they're like grass compared to the power of me over creation and sustaining and holding creation together, how much more will the day of the Lord happen? And so God's sovereignty reinforces the salvation of the day of the Lord. 
because God has absolute power over creation, then you ought to know the day of the Lord really will happen. You see the logic in in the two? God sits enthroned in the heavens over creation, ruling over it with all power and all sovereignty. And yes, there are peanut men on the earth now with all of their power games and egotistical maniacs and all of their schemes and you know restructuring programs and and all of their banking schemes are just it it it, uh, it ain't right. But in a moment. You know, he can weigh the scales in a balance, and the princes of the earth, they're like grasshoppers. And at the day of the Lord, he squashes them, and he blows on the grass, and it withers in a moment. You see what I'm saying? The sovereignty reinforces the, the belief in salvation at the day of the Lord. Um, but when you set up reality this way and contrast materiality versus immateriality, things get all mixed up, and you can't you can't you can't integrate the sovereignty with the salvation because he's ruling over something that ultimately he's going to destroy. It's like I love my family and my house, but at some point yeah, I'm going to disown them and and uh, bulldoze down my house. It's like what I I don't <laughs> you know. I don't under it doesn't it just doesn't mesh. So um, Matthew five, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And the idea of sons again is is in the resurrection. So he's referencing the our uh, our reward at the day of the Lord. He causes his son to sh- to rise on evil and on the good, and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the Lucan, uh, uh, in the Lucan parallel in Luke six, he says the same thing, but he says, "Be merciful, therefore, as your Father is merciful." And so, relate in love and mercy the way God relates in love and mercy. Um, so, because really, this human beings imitate God. Okay, Let, let's just. If God is, if his primary game is escape, and God is a God of escapism, then that will equate to the church on the earth as being a body of escapists who are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good, and they don't want to have any involvement in life in this age, and they don't want to deal with anybody, and they're so perfect and awesome and holy until they get married and have kids and and then their delusion is crushed or if god is a god of dominion and he's establishing his sovereignty over creation that's in rebellion to him and etc etc then this creates then we imitate god and we are like god and we create a little movement of dominionists that are trying to you know get enough money to take over the government and take over all those seven hills and such but if God is a God of, of mercy and long-suffering and kindness, then it sets a standard and it creates a, per, a people of mercy and kindness and, and uh, restraint from vengeance uh, upon its enemies and uh, upon the wicked. And they actually seek to express the love of God 
especially as embodied in the cross. Um, so Acts 17, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that uh, all everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day when He will judge the world in righteousness through the man He's appointed, referencing uh, the day of the Lord. Romans 2, uh, But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourself on, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. We, uh, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And so you get, uh, I don't know if you've, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm kind of a, a dorky conspiracy theory fan in my spare time, and so I watch all of these conspiracy documentaries on, you know, the uh, conspiracies of people for power and money. And generally the way I evaluate conspiracies is if they're about power and money, they're generally true. And if they're about aliens and UFOs, they're not. <laughs> or whatever, you know what I mean? But power and money, generally, that's the case. Because, you know, we actually believe human beings are wicked and the kings of the earth are wicked, including our own. And so, and so, what was my point? In, um, the, storing up wrath. Oh, yeah, yeah. So almost every documentary on wickedness and oppression, ultimately, they always come at the end with some sort of justice or vengeance upon those guys. And this is your response to suffering and tyranny and oppression. In whatever form, they usually give examples of this is how we need to respond. And the reason that whole vein ends up and delusion and usually takes people down a road that they end up turning on God if they go down it far enough because they get disillusioned because they have no hope for justice on the day of the Lord. And so and um, so this the when you have a theology of the sovereignty expressed as mercy now and the day of the Lord and the restoration of creation, it satisfies the human heart with not only your own dealing with your own suffering and sickness now, but dealing with wickedness and oppression, that you can pray for your enemies and love your enemies, and you can actually receive healing from the damage that's done to you. Because if there's anything other than a response towards injustice of forgiveness and passing on judgment to the Lord at the, at the, uh, and wrath to the Lord... The human heart can never uh, receive, it can never heal, and it can never embrace the cross because there's no healing for the human heart outside of the cross. Um, all right, so temporal recompense testifies to eschatological rep- recompense. And so I, I put Psalm 73 there, uh, which we read, but I won't hit it. Luke 13, the idea of. It's not that God is absolutely refraining from punishing the wicked and rewarding the righteous because that's what recompense is about and that's what the day of the Lord is about. It's punishing the wicked 
it's executing judgment upon the wicked and rewarding the righteous. And so it's not as though God is absolutely not doing any kind of recompense now. There is temporal judgment now. There are temporal blessings now. But the whole point of those temporal judgments and temporal blessings is that they're designed by God to point to the eternal recompense and eternal blessings. So if you're like Abraham and you get blessed, then it it strengthens your faith in the resurrection and the true blessing of the age to come and what you'll receive from there. But if you don't have the blessing like Job and you get everything taken away from you, it, it doesn't it doesn't phase you because your heart is anchored in the re- in the blessing to come and likewise if you don't if you sign up to follow god because you want to see the punishment of the wicked and you see the punishment of the wicked in a temporal you know like jonah with the ninevites or you don't see it your heart isn't stir isn't shifted one way or the other but if you sign up for recompense now and to see your inheritance in your kingdom now and you don't view God's rulership over creation now and when wicked people do get punished or wicked people prosper or the righteous do get rewarded or the righteous don't get rewarded and they don't get blessed and their best life is not now, then it doesn't doesn't affect your heart. So I can receive from the Lord a... I can receive from the Lord somebody giving me a new car. And I can go, that's awesome, Lord, because that makes me, you know, it strengthens my faith that you are actually going to come and you are actually going to raise me from the dead. And and I am going to actually inherit the earth. But if I don't get the new car and my old car dies and I'm stuck on the side of the road with screaming kids and all of that scenario, then my heart isn't phased because I'm not looking for the blessing of the righteous in this age. I'm expecting my heart is anchored in the day of the Lord. But if you're looking for God establishing His blessing and punishing the wicked now, and you sign up for, if you follow Jesus, then He'll make your life better, then when He does actually make your life better, then you fall away, and prosperity makes you fall away. Because your life still sucks, and you're still not dealing with the issue of death. You know what I mean? Or you do get healed from the sickness, but then you end up dying anyway. You're not I mean there's no there's no anchor for the heart to relate to God and to interpret life through. You know what I mean? Or if you sign up for for prosperity now and you don't get it, then you get disillusioned. You're like, "What the heck?" you know? He told me if I surrender my life to the Lord, everything would get better. Or if you sign up for the a social justice and a cause to punish the wicked for their wickedness and you do actually see it and righteousness is established but it's never enough because you can't the the church is not going to take over the world and righteousness is not going to be established across the earth before the day of the lord that that that's a delusion is not going to happen and the wicked will prosper until the day of the lord and the wicked will prosper more and more and more. And it doesn't make us, it doesn't make us, you know, our, uh, our, it doesn't make us without hope. It doesn't make us, uh, what's the word? Um, it doesn't make us, uh, no, uh, uh, the word will come to me. It, it's, it's, uh, 
No. Yeah, defeat us. It doesn't make us whatever. Like we don't have, like we just give up and whatever. That's not it at all. Our hope is fully strengthened. Though we waste away outwardly, inwardly we're renewed day by day. And our faith is strengthened. Even though the world continues to get worse and worse and worse. And even though our bodies get worse and our life and finances get worse and whatever, whatever, our faith in our inner man is strengthened. And then, even if we, you know, it's the... Anyway, so, all right, move on. Page 5. Oh, Jude 1. So this is a... uh, The angels who didn't keep their position of authority, he is kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So Sodom and Gomorrah, they did receive an aspect of, of the temporal punishment of God. But that obviously wasn't the totality of it. And the design of it in God was to warn the earth to repent of their wickedness in all of its various forms. Even if it wasn't expressed like Sodom and Gomorrah, like Luke 13. Why, don't say that the guys with the Tower of Siloam that fell on were any worse sinners than you. You know, you too ought to also repent. Because that happened and God expressed whatever form of, of judgment because generally all catastrophes in creation in the scriptures are attributed to the sovereignty and hand of God. That was designed to communicate to humanity like Katrina or whatever disaster is designed to communicate to humanity, repent because the day of the Lord is going to happen. There's going to be a much greater catastrophe that's coming. So, um, all right. Point three, biblical salvation and sovereignty embodied in the cross. So, John 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. So within this framework, this is how it gets interpreted. That God lifted up Jesus on the cross that whoever believes in Him will escape and have eternal life within the eternal, static, timeless realm here and will live on a cloud forever. And He so loved the world that he provided a mechanism to a rope to pull us out of the uh, burning house or whatever. So, rather within this context, the cross is the expression of his love and mercy towards the wicked and towards sinners that he would come and die as in our stead to take the wrath of God upon Himself, that we might have everlasting life in which, in which we live as we were intended to live in the beginning. And creation in our bodies and, and everything perpetually live and regenerate as, as they were designed to in the beginning. Uh, A, the cross is the means of salvation. Romans 3, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the glory of God, again, there's, there's lots of technical words that end up get, getting interpreted within the two frameworks. And so the glory 
is here refers generally to the idea of the immaterial light and glory uh, place along with life, you know, eternal life, and then you'll also have light. Rather, here it's glory of the resurrection as when the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all mankind and the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And so the glory of the Lord refers to the restoration of creation, eternal life, live as children of the light. This is the age of darkness. That is the age uh, uh, light of the age to come. So we've all fallen short of the glory of God and the resurrection and inheriting eternal life and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. And so, um, and then you are worthy to take the scroll because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, and made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they'll reign on the earth. And so, um, and so, uh, my train of thought, sorry. Oh, so the cross, like the image of the, of, the, of the snake on the pole lifted up in the wilderness with the Israelites, it's the, it's, the, uh, it's the only way out of the human condition of sickness and sin and death and suffering is a consistent entrusting yourself to the righteousness of the cross because what happens in the human heart when, when the human heart gets diluted with pride and we're awesome, then we end up not relating to God rightly, you know. And we, we're, we're, we're awesome. We don't really, we don't recognize ourselves as utterly wicked and we, we, don't, we don't self-evaluate in light of the cross. And so, like Paul, where he went from, you know, the... Hebrew of Hebrews, whatever, whatever, and then by the end of his life, he is the chief of sinners. That that happens because of a steady gaze and relating yourself to God in light of the cross. And that this is what I actually deserve, and this is what is in the heart of man, and this is etc., etc., and the only way out of what we deserve and the vipers and death is consistently relating to God and a focus on the cross and receiving our righteousness because when when we have the pride and the false delusions then we end up setting up standards to make ourselves feel right and we do feel right when we attain, when we attain this standard of like in the in academic circles of knowledge and understanding and whatever whatever or in various realms you you set up standards of of uh, evangelism or set up standards of of devotion like in monastic circles or you set up standards of whatever we we establish all these standards that make our hearts feel right and okay about ourselves and we end up leaving ourselves in delusion about how we actually are on the inside and we don't end up relating to the cross as the source of our rightness before god and so not only that, we don't see ourselves, but then outside of the cross, we don't see the sovereignty of God and how God is relating to us rightly. 
And so we don't see ourselves and we don't see God rightly and we don't receive the love of God and the mercy of God in the midst of, because we relate to God in light of the cross and we see our own wickedness and darkness. But likewise, you have to, you have to relate God in light of the cross that equally as much He is extending mercy and love towards us in our darkness and weakness. And you get preaching on the love of God and how God loves us, but it leaves people empty when it's not in light of the cross. And there's, there's a stirring in the heart that, you know, God really does love me and my brokenness and all of whatever, whatever. But if it's not channeled through the event of the cross, there's no actual foundation of God doing in history this to demonstrate His love while we were yet utterly sinners, He died for us and expressed His, his love and mercy towards us. And so, um, uh, point B, the cross as the embodiment of God's sovereignty. So, Luke 22, I tell you I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, in reference uh, to the day of the Lord. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them, said, this is my body given for you, this is the cup of the covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins, which is poured out for you. And so the point of the Passover meal and communion is that it's a celebrating and a remembrance of the nature of the mercy of God extended towards us in the cross. Um, Romans 5 at the right time, while we are still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. Um, but God demonstrates His love for us in this, that while we are sinners, Christ died for us and justified us by His blood. Um, Philippians 2 Um, sorry, it's a lack of sleep setting in. Okay, we'll just go see. Believers called to imitate the God of the cross. And so, uh, likewise, as uh, God is merciful and long-suffering, so likewise, not only is that to be the primary witness of believers in this age, like Luke, like uh, Luke, uh, like Luke 24, he says, uh, he says, uh, this is what was written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And so, not only is our primary witness that repentance and forgiveness of sins is extended uh, in light of the cross, but also it's to embody the very nature of the cross, because you can speak the, you can say this is how God is, but unless there's an embodying of it, then there's not a uh, real power behind it. So Ephesians five: Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave Himself up. And. Uh, and I'm thinking of like the uh, um, like First Peter uh, one two. 
where he's talking to slaves and he says, uh, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you, they may see your good, do, good deeds and glorify God on the day he comes to judge. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether king, etc., etc. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the, under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. Because this is how God relates to the harsh and the unjust. He says, um, But how is it to your credit that if you receive a beating doing for wrong, etc., etc., to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in His steps. And so uh, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And so it's the Lord set an example towards the wicked that we ought to follow in his steps and, and witness not only with our words but with our deeds embodying the cross, communicating that this is how God relates towards humanity's wi- uh, wickedness in light of the day of the Lord. And so any witness or movement that testifies to anything that doesn't witness to the day of the Lord, that doesn't lead people to the day of the Lord, that is a false witness. It's a false teacher. It's a false prophet. It's a false apostle. It's a false whatever, whatever. The falsehood is involved in the relating and leading people unto the day of the Lord. Because ultimately what it does is it gets people to relate to men rather than to relate to the Lord and to express, uh, well, whatever, I won't work through it. Okay, so uh, John 12, it's not uh, just a matter that this is good theology and that this is how God is in redemptive history in the cross. It's that... It's obligatory. <laughs> it's like, it's not that it's good for you, my son, to be nice to your brother. And it's not just that it leads to a harmonious household. It's that you have to. It's not really an option. And so it's not just that, you know what, dominionist theology or whatever theology and relating this way is a bad deal and it, it relate, people get delusion, people get hurt, etc., etc. No, it's the issue that there's no focus on the cross and that those who do not embrace the cross don't actually get raised from the dead. It's obligatory that it happens this way because, all right, just, sorry, I... The, the way the cross is interpreted here and uh, the, the martyrdom of Jesus is interpreted here is within dominionism, martyrdom and the cross is the tool unto taking over the earth. And so the way believers relate to the cross is that they use it as a tool to get more power to establish dominion justice upon the earth, rather than relating to it as a model and the means to righteousness. So within here, nobody embraces suffering and, and, and death because the cross is seen as a failure. 
And therefore, martyrdom is seen as a failure because the powers and kingdoms of the earth have taken, have overcome the powers and kingdoms of the church. And then within scapism, it's just seen as a waste. Right? There's just one less laborer to pull people out of the fire. Whereas here, the cross actually embodies the testimony of God if it's done in love. Right? Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I give all that I have to the poor and subject my body to the flames, even unto martyrdom, but I don't have love, then it's worth nothing. But if I embrace suffering and persecution and extend mercy to my enemies, even unto them killing me, in the very act you embody the cross and the testimony of God and the mercy and kindness of God. You see what I'm saying? So like, like uh, Stephen's martyrdom, the first martyr, which martyr means witness in the Greek, the first martyr, he says right before he dies, right, he has, uh, so Stephen's right here and he looks up and he sees Jesus at the right hand of the, fa- of the Father. And so do you understand what's going on in, in Stephen's mind? He's looking up and he sees heaven opened and the glory and power and majesty. And so his strength is renewed in the day of the Lord. And Jesus is going to crush these wicked men who are about to stone him and kill him. And so his response in in relation to that is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The same response as the Lord Jesus. You see what I'm saying? And so in the act of... Of, of martyrdom is a testimony and the act of embracing the cross is a testimony to the love and mercy of God and ultimately to the day of the Lord if it's done out of a right heart of love and self-sacrifice okay so uh, John 12 the hour has come so John 12 is in context we're about to okay I'm going to give you guys a break sorry so John 12 is in the context of the triumphal entry and everybody, he's coming into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of the donkey, so then they're expecting his rule to extend from sea to sea. And, and the Pharisees are saying the whole world's going after him and the Greeks come up and they want to see him. And Jesus replies to all of this expectation that he's going to uh, usher in the kingdom and the resurrection, etc., He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, because the cross is the glory of God. It it embodies who God is. He's a God of the cross. It embodies how the earth was in the beginning. Mm -hmm. It embodies how the earth was in the beginning when human beings were created in the image of God. And it embodies the glory of the age to come when the righteous will be established over the earth and those who are actually loving and righteous and don't rule for themselves but are like... uh, Okay, so... All right, well, we'll get there. Anyway, so... It, the earth will be conformed to the glory of the cross in the age to come, as is embodied in the cross now. So he says, um, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. And so he's referring to himself as a good seed, 
versus the wicked seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. If he, in, if he embraces the cross, then it sets an example, like in the next chapter when he washes his disciples' feet and he says, Now I, as your Lord and Master, I've washed your feet, I've set an example for you. So if he embraces the cross, then it sets an example for many to uh, take up their cross and, and follow him and embody a life of love just as Christ loved us. The man who loves his life will lose it in this age, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life in the resurrection. Whoever serves me must follow me. So there's not like an oblig- there's not like a choice in the equation. Like either you live your life to embody the cross and you'll be raised up on the last day or you live your life for yourself and you use other people for yourself in this age like you you can't you can't live for both you can't live for this age and for the age to come it just don't work that way so um Whoever, follow, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be in the resurrection. My Father will honor the one who serves me on that day. For whoever humbles himself will be exalted, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And it's the same bit in Matthew 16, when there's the expectation that you're the Christ, we're going to enter into the glory, I'm going to sit at your right hand, this is going to be sweet. And then he says, but... The Messiah must go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of, of the wicked and die and be raised from the dead. And Peter pulls him aside and goes, no, no this, doesn't, this doesn't happen to the Messiah. This is, we're entering into the glory. And he says, if you want to enter into the glory, then you take up your cross and live a life of love and self-sacrifice in truth and reality. Um, and then uh, you'll and so Colossians one, this is uh, the gospel that you've heard and and that is uh, has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I Paul have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, which is the church. And so the idea there is again just the same idea, not that he's filling up uh, in what the cross accomplished in the atonement, but he's filling up in the testimony of the cross towards human beings in the affliction, uh, uh, representing Jesus in that way. So, all right, I feel like I rambled there. But uh, let's just ask the Lord to, uh, to help us live that. God, we ask you, Uh, in light of your return and the day of the Lord, in light of who we are and our brokenness, in light of all of the issues, God, we ask you to make us people who follow your Son and take up our cross in uh, true love and humility and self-sacrifice, that you would conform us into people who not only believe this, uh, but live this, that you would anchor our hope in the age to come, the glory of an earth characterized uh, by the cross, 
We ask You, God, to drive the cross into our hearts, that it would be like an anchor, like the Israelites in the wilderness, that our eyes would not be taken off of it, that our whole uh, passion and consuming desire in life would would be to keep our eyes on the mercy extended to us in the cross and the hope that we will receive in the resurrection, God. In Jesus' name, amen.